Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is interrupted death experience. My guest is Father Nathan Castle, who is a Catholic priest of the semi-contemplative Dominican order. He has served as a campus minister and helped stuck souls and not-so-stuck souls who have died suddenly and traumatically adjust to the afterlife. He is author of Toto II, The Wizard of Oz as a Spiritual Adventure. Afterlife Interrupted, Helping Stuck Souls Cross Over, a Catholic priest explores the interrupted death experience. And Afterlife Interrupted Book 2, Helping Souls Cross Over. Father Nathan is located in Tucson, Arizona, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Father Nathan. It's such a pleasure to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. It's great to be with you. You have a unique gift that I haven't seen with other Catholic priests and that you're able to help people who are stuck in the afterlife. How did you begin doing this? Well, I grew up, I was baptized at three weeks old on April Fool's Day in 1956. And I I was raised in a Catholic home that was not only concerned with the externals, the rules and regulations of an organized religion, but I was taught spiritual practice very, very early. My dad had only two siblings, and they both became Dominican nuns and first grade teachers. Uh, That's the order I belong to. Uh, And then my mom was a very uh, wise woman of faith who was, she had five of us. I'm, I'm in the middle of those five. She taught us very early on that we had families on earth and a family in heaven, uh, that most of the time we dealt with our family on earth, but at night before we went to sleep, we made it a point to talk to our other family, uh, my other mom and dad. Uh, I began to, once I understood what death was, I understood, I was taught that people after they die continue to live, but differently, and they go to another place. Uh, I learned that that uh, m- most go to an intermediate place. I was taught about heaven and hell, although we were taught that hell, uh, God would only, we would only know if anyone was in it if we were told so, when we, and God had never told us that. Okay. Uh, but there were many saints who were in heaven, but many people were not quite ready for heaven at the instant that they died, and they had a place to go and kind of get um, prepped, uh, kind of cl- cleaned up like you were going to church or you were going to a wedding or something special where you needed to be uh, looking your best or something. Anyway, I learned that most people were in this purgatory, which purge means to cleanse, and that we could help them by praying for them, that we could make things go faster or better somehow. And so we did blessings. When I was really tiny and couldn't form my own sentences, I would repeat after my mom, God bless Aunt Odile, God bless Uncle Joe. And we could bless people in our house, people in the next state, or people who had already died. And so they, it didn't really matter where they were because God was everywhere. God was always with everybody wherever they were, and the blessing would get where it wanted where you wanted it to go. Uh, 
Uh, and then uh, when I was a little older, I learned that uh, the, the church had this idea of purgatory that um, some of it was sort of like a punishment, but not hell. And that there was uh, that you could help people move through their time in purgatory by praying for them and make it go faster. So I began to think of it as like people waiting in line at the bank. But my dad took me to the bank. My parents both were, were uh, raised in poverty and my they lifted us up out of poverty during their lifetime. But uh, we each had a college savings fund made the week we were born. And dad would take us to the bank to uh, hand the thing to the lady and see that the numbers were bigger. Well, but at the bank, you have to wait in these lines. They plan on making you wait. They have these lobbies with these zigzaggedy ropes in it that it's quite evident that they're, they planned on you waiting. So I just thought maybe it's like that. So before I'd go to sleep, I would pray for whoever was one prayer away from heaven because there's always somebody whose turn is next. And I was taught, I think in first grade, that if yours was the prayer that sprung someone from purgatory into heaven, you'd have a friend for all eternity. So that seemed like low-hanging fruit to me. I, I could make friends in heaven by just saying one little prayer for whoever was closest, but not quite there. Uh, and then I would think, well, that doesn't seem too fair. Somebody just got there and they have you see this long line ahead of them. So I would encourage them by praying for the guy that just arrived. And then I would think, but there's most of them are in the middle. I'll, I'll, God just, I would say a, a kind of a wild card prayer and say, God, apply this one to anybody you want. And then a little later when I could read, there were obituaries in both our morning and evening newspapers. We got two every day. And in the in Texas in the 60s, almost everybody was buried from a church. It, there weren't these celebrations of life in a park or something like that. Uh, and so you could read at the bottom what church they belonged to. And if they weren't Catholic, I'd pray for them because I learned that the Baptists didn't believe there was a purgatory. So their families wouldn't be praying for them. So I just figured, okay, I'll, I'll do those. <laughs> so I had this very involved idea about the afterlife from very, very early on. Well, that is very unique. And how would you describe heaven? I remember, I'm still going back to first grade. Heaven would be that place in which God would provide, provide everything you need to be completely happy. And Jesus, in I think it's John... 18 or 19 talks about in my father's house, there are many mansions elsewise. Why would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? But it's a specific place. So when, it, when I do funerals, I usually use that gospel text to um, talk about people's particular heaven, the thing that they most want. Why do these souls need our prayers? Do you mean that it, um, it seems superfluous. I mean, why it is, isn't heaven self-contained? Why can't it take care of itself or something like that? That and what have they done or not done that might, where they might need assistance? Well, I just think of the universe as uni, as united, as one. And that um, I believe that sometimes we make too big of a distinction between here and hereafter, however you think of the afterlife. Um, a lot of people that I'm around uh, I'm a member of IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies and Spiritual Awakenings International. I'm around a lot of people who have an interest in consciousness studies and uh, and life after death. And I just think of it as more of a continuity. Uh, and so for me, uh, it just makes sense that we interact with um, the next planes or the next world, however you want to 
envision it. So I just think it's sort of natural that that uh, heaven and earth cooperate. Let me say at the outset, because we're still so early in the interview, I, I haven't been given a guided tour of the afterlife. I, I feel like I'm looking through a peephole. I think it's important to be, you know, modest about what I've experienced, even though I've been experiencing it for 25 years. Why are these souls in purgatory versus somewhere else? Well, the ones that I deal with all died sudden, violent deaths, uh, traumatic deaths. Do you remember um, any of your your uh, audience that have taken the first course in psychology? Everybody gets introduced to Freud early on, and and then a little bit later to Jung. And one of the critiques of Freud was that he was generalizing about the, the structure of the human personality based on a psychopathological group of people that he met with in Vienna. Yeah. Is that familiar to you? Absolutely. Uh, and so I remember that. My, my, that's part of my training. And I'm dealing with a small subset of the human race that dies suddenly, violently, traumatically, and who... Uh, need extra help in the afterlife. So uh, generalizing based upon that population is something to do with care. But uh, given with that said, I have been, I'm, I feel like my prayer partners and I are at the, on a continuum of healthcare. Imagine what might happen if you or I were in a terrible accident on the freeway uh, and, and survived it, but perhaps only barely. Uh, someone would arrive in an ambulance with the skill of getting us out of the circumstance, getting us into a, an ambulance, caring for us on the way to an emergency room or surgery or an ICU room post-surgery, all the way, if we healed, all the way to the end of that continuum where you're ready to go home because you don't need this any longer. That's where I believe my prayer partners and I are located. We're the discharge staff. Yeah. I love that analogy of healing. I mean, we all are seem to be evolving our consciousnesses and we can have events that can be shocking. And the souls who you have helped, it seems that most, if not all of them, have experienced some type of trauma. And you've even shared that they can get stuck in a trauma loop. Yes. I'm, I Earlier, uh, a few years ago, I was discerning a kind of late in life uh vocation within a vocation, career change or shift. And I was studying PTSD and moral injury among those returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was trying to, I was trying to network myself into uh, people in that field and healers in that field. And so PTSD often has a kind of a looping uh, kind of consciousness where it's frustrating because the person can't even control what they're thinking especially at night. And a lot of them have terrible sleep trouble because it's a little easier to change your thinking when you're awake, but you're, but not so much when you're asleep. Um, so that, so some of the people that I've dealt with in this afterlife work, uh, stayed in the consciousness of the last thing that happened to them, the screeching of the tires or something, uh, uh loud sounds or something that, uh, were traumatic to begin with. And then sometimes what they've needed to do is move out of that gradually. Sometimes that's done by inviting a person to take a break and saying, let's just practice for a minute. Let's think about butterflies. <laughs> let's, let's think about somebody who loves you 
and and kind of going to flex some muscles, almost the way a physical therapist would get you to use some muscles that need to be strengthened. And you can go back to that other way of thinking, but but we want to establish this that there you do have some volition, even if it doesn't feel like much. You do have some ability to choose a different way of thinking than the one that uh, you're defaulting to. These souls initially started coming to you in dreams. Yes, that's the way they. That's the whole genre that I that I get one of these about once a week. And how did this first start occurring for you? The first in this particular modality happened about 25 years ago. I was at the time the director of the Catholic campus ministry at Arizona State University in Tempe, Phoenix. I was on a retreat in northern Arizona with a group of, of friends, and during the night. Uh, someone came in a dream. Uh, the beginning of the dream, I was finishing a round of golf with a friend, going into the 18th hole, the bar. Uh, when we went into the bar, there was an, a silent auction going on in this dream that was a fundraiser for a charity. So this is all my, I'm, I've run nonprofits my whole life. I, I know about charity events. So we're at this thing and on the wall, there's this piece of donated art that was just horrific. And I pointed it out to my friend and said, look at that god-awful thing. Who would donate that to a charity? And I may began to move toward it because it just had something compelling about it. And it began to move toward me. It was before we had televisions on walls, but it was rather like that. And it moved toward me. And, we, and, and inside the frame, this little video played of a man sitting on the radiator of a car from the late... 50s, the kind with lots of chrome and fins. Uh, he hadn't been in a wreck, but he was sitting on the radiator facing away from the car and he burst into flames and was screaming. Um, he was angry at somebody that was outside the frame and I woke up and I knew instantly that it was the first part was my own psychobabble, my own consciousness doing whatever it does in the night. And then this other part was not that. Uh, and the analogy I've used often is that as a priest, I have to sometimes take my turn with a pager from a local hospital. Uh, if a Catholic is in an emergency in the night, then wants a priest, it might be you on know, Tuesday night, it might be your turn to have the pager. And if it goes off, you have to suddenly rouse yourself and talk with somebody at the nurse's station and get the room number and, and the patient name and get dressed hurriedly and get there. It felt like that, that there was a traumatic story playing out. Uh, and that I had been awakened, something like having the pager go off. Like a sense of urgency. Yes. Well, as somebody in pain who's reaching out to you mm -hmm. and, uh, and urgency. So I wrote it down. Well, first, I said a prayer to the person and said, hello, my name is Nathan. Um, I, will, I, I, I think I tried to receive as best I could what you were conveying. I'll, I'll figure it out in the morning. Uh, and but for right now, good night and God bless. <laughs> I went back to sleep. But in the in, on retreat in the morning, any of your your listeners and viewers that might have ever gone on retreat, they're always early risers, people that get up and run or uh, maybe just enjoy the coffee as soon as it's ready, uh, or just enjoy the quiet moments that precede a busy day. I I um, I was. Uh, up for coffee and a friend of mine who had been a prayer partner of mine and who I knew had extraordinary uh, spiritual gifts. I s told her what happened. And I said, when we get a break, would you mind if we go into prayer and see what this is and how we might help? And when we did that, um, 
we got very still. And my friend said, whoever this man is, he really wants to talk to you. Would it be okay for me to allow that? Um, and so I, we, we had already said protected prayer with Michael the Archangel, with Mary, Mother of Jesus, uh, a number of the other, St. Dominic, the patron of our order, several others. And I just said, well, yeah, go ahead. Um, and uh, the, out of her came a voice of a man saying, who the hell does he think he is taking me just when my life was getting good? And I said, well, my name is Nathan. Hey, we know your name. And he said, I'm Ray. And that, uh, that's how it got started. From there, we, you know, it was like a new counselee when, when, uh, when someone that you don't know wants, uh, comes into your space. One of the first things you might say is, hi, how may I help you? And so I asked him that and, and, uh, we learned that he, he had died suddenly and violently in 1960 when I was four years old. He had gotten his girlfriend pregnant this, their senior year in high school. They lived in rural Georgia. Um, they had been married a year and a half when, uh, an, a, an accident occurred where he died uh, in flames, which he had shown me in the, the little video thing. And, but his problem was, he said, I said, we asked, what do you want? And he said, I want to be with my wife. And he had been watching her for 40 years. She had, uh, was in her early twenties when, when Ray died, but now she was, he said, she's an old woman. She's got cancer. She moved to South Carolina, married her a lawyer and moved up. But now she's dying of cancer and I want to greet her when she passes, but I can't the way I am. So he was able to pretty succinctly tell us what it was, his problem was and what he wanted. So we said, okay, we'll work with that. And you were communicating with your prayer partner with Ray via psychically or as, as a channel. Yes, uh, through what inspired speech. I knew that she had that gift. Um, and it's not as though we used it as a parlor trick or anything. It was, I just thought of it as one more spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit, uh, gives to people. And that's why she asked, is it okay if I use it? And I said, yes, we've done our protective prayer and we're only trying to help someone who's come to us. So yes, please. And so, uh, we didn't really know what we were doing except to use our wits, uh, our, uh, you know, we just had to figure things out and we didn't really have the leisure to linger with him because we were on this retreat and I was leaving it. So uh, we needed to kind of get him started and say, okay, well, we're going to meet up with you in a, in a few days. So we made something like an appointment and said, just don't go too far, stick around. You know how you found us this time. You must be able to find us again. But we'll we'll help. We'll do the best we can. And it, over the next couple of weeks, I think we met twice more, uh, and were able to kind of size up how we might help him. We knew. I told him that you're telling me your wife has cancer, and I asked him what kind of uh, what's what's it been like for you since you died? It's been forty years. Where have you been? What have you done? And he said nothing much. And I said, well, now you you want to go from zero to sixty? You you. Now there's a deadline, uh, literally coming for your, your dying wife. And now we're in a hurry. So I said, I've had a lot of experience helping people and most people don't like to be hurried, but I'm going to have to hurry you. And at the any, if at any point you don't like it, uh, you just say goodbye. <laughs> you don't have to do, you're in charge of you and you don't have to do anything I say. But if you want my help, I'm going to push and, uh, 
Uh, and I'm, I'm only doing it because I want to help you achieve what you've said you wanted. Yeah. So that's the way it began. Uh, short and in, in brief, and people can read this, the longer version of this in, in the first of the two books. Uh, he, um, he had ideas about God that were holding him back. Uh, one of them was that God takes people and that's why they die. And so God was at fault for it, put it, setting them on fire. So why would he want to be with a God like that? So I had to push back against that and say, well, there's a lot of, I, I asked him, did anybody ever say anything wrong about you? Because we do that a lot. We assume things about others. And I said, well, do the math, Ray. God is huge. You're small. If that happens to you on a small scale, imagine how many untrue things get said about God all day, every day. Maybe you're wrong. Well, he didn't like that because nobody but likes to be told they could be wrong. Uh, but he at least allowed that thought in. Uh, at one point, we said, you, you want to move, and you, you've been in the same place since you died. So it seems to me we ought to get you in circulation somehow. We ought to get you to go for a walk or something. Don't you think that would be smart? And he said, yeah, I guess. So we asked, um, well, he told us that his, he learned about God from his mother who beat him while he prayed. He was made to kneel next to his bed, and while he said his prayers, his mother beat him. I said, well, why in the world she did that? I don't know. She just did. Um, so he said, well, if you'd gotten to raise your son, he had a son that was a year and a half old. Would you think you would have beat him while he prayed? And he said, of course not. I said, well, let's, let's just hold the idea that maybe the mother that beat you while you prayed might have taught you something weird about God. Maybe. Uh, so anyway, we, uh, I said, well, what about your dad? Uh, I was thinking of people in the afterlife who might have died before him. And he said, yeah, my dad died when I was 10. I hardly knew him. I was kind of afraid of him. He died in the war. And I said, well, Vietnam, and he said, no, Korea. So I said, well, it's just a counseling technique. When, when people go low, you try to take them high. So I said, well, think about it for a second. Was there a moment in the life of you and your dad that was great? Did you ever have a really fun time with your dad? And he thought about it, and he said, yeah, one time we went and looked at cars. I said, well, we need to go now, but um, do you think it would be all right if, for us to ask your dad to come to you if he can? And not come too close so that you can see who he is, but not be scared of him. You can decide whether he gets to come closer or not. Would that be all right? And he said, yeah, I think I could do that. So we just said a prayer and said, God, would you please send Ray's dad if he's available? And he said, oh, golly, look at that. And I said, well, what do you see? I can't see what you're seeing. And he said, well, um, uh, it's my dad. And I said, well, does he look scary? Do you think you're being tricked? And he said, no, it's just my dad. And I said, well, then... If you feel safe, remember where you are so you can find your way back, kind of like the way you park your car in, in a stadium or something. <laughs> you know, Remember how to get back where you need to be. Uh, make sure that when, as you go for your walk, make sure you can come back to your safe place. But you and your dad go and have a little adventure, and we'll talk to you in a few days. So we did that. And over time, uh, I told him that, that in the end, I thought that he was a caveman, that every time he talked about his wife, he acted like he would grab her by her hair and pull her into his cave. And I said, and he, of course he didn't like that. Nobody would. But I just said, every time you talk about her, it sounds like you think you own her. Well, you were her husband for about a year and a half, but she's now an old woman. She's loved lots of people. When she dies, you're probably not going to be the only one that wants to greet her. Don't you think there'll be a few? And he, he allowed that thought in. And I said, I think if you would just behave like a gentleman, 
and allow yourself to be in the, in uh, in a team of people that greet her. Maybe that would work. Well, another a little bit more time passed. A few days we met up. Uh, what was uh, the next time? And he we asked him how things were going. He said, "Big news: my wife passed." I said, "Oh, well, tell us all about that." And he and he said. Uh, it was very much like you said, I, I was there, but there was a few other people too. And he said, you'd have been proud of me. I was a perfect gentleman. I said, terrific. I knew you could do it. And he got what he wanted. He was with his wife when she passed. And we said, well, it seems like it's now time for us to say goodbye. We, you, you know, you came here for a purpose and you've uh, accomplished that purpose. So I just said, um, he agreed and, and he said, well, I said, well, now that you've learned how to be a greeter in the afterlife, I wonder if you wouldn't mind keeping an eye on me because you know how to do that. He watched his wife for 40 years, said, would you just keep an eye on me? And when it's time for me to pass, would you mind being in the welcoming party? And he said, why, sir, I would be most honored. Just look for the perfect gentleman. And so I named that chapter in book one, Ray, the perfect gentleman. He's still a part of my prayer team. You can't have an experience like that and then just that have that person utterly go away completely. He's he's part of my heart. Yeah, he was the first who came to you. Yes, he was. You mentioned that he watched his wife for 40 years. I actually was mostly, until my parents divorced, and then even some a little bit more, was raised Catholic. And my kind of thought some of the understanding of that was that when you die, you go to heaven and, and that's it. And that souls can stay in heaven. But it sounds like you're suggesting that when souls pass, they can still connect with or even communicate with their loved ones here on earth. Yes, I'm certain of it. Even the word heaven, I love words and etymology. And any of your um, audience who speak Spanish would know that they're, the Spanish word for heaven is cielo. But it's also the common word for sky. So a Spanish speaker, when they use the word cielo, you have to discern from context whether they're talking about the place where angels fly or where birds fly. Well, in English, we, we can use the word heaven to describe the sky. The heavens are glorious today. It's so sunny. But it's, it seems sort of a Shakespearean or something. We hardly ever, it's so poetic. We don't, we don't in English look at the sky and call it heaven. But uh, it's the same concept. And I like to tell people when, in an audience, for example, what part of your body is touching the earth right now? Well, sometimes none of it if, have, you know, if they have their feet off the floor. But I say, what, put your feet on the floor at the very least. What part of you is touching the earth? Well, obviously, the soles of my feet. And then that doesn't that mean the rest of you is dangling? You know that the, ball, the earth is a ball. The rest of you is not touching the earth. It's where, how, where does the sky begin? Well, it begins at, at the floor. <laughs> We're already in the atmosphere. Uh, and so could you imagine yourself being in, uh, in, in heaven? Jesus, one of the things Jesus said was, uh, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So this spatial idea has, it's, uh, all of this is an attempt to describe a mystery. And it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, I, I was, I'm, my background is sociology, which is one of the social sciences. When I was at Stanford for seven years and it was moving increasingly away from social sciences into computer tech and uh, hard sciences and students at Stanford used to call the social sciences fuzzy. 
in a kind of pejorative way because it can't be measured exactly the way physics or chemistry might do a thing or even math. Um, well, be that as it may, I, I just believe that there's room both for clear descriptions of mysteries and uh, respect for the fact that a mystery doesn't have to be uh, broken down into bits. <laughs> you, you, there, there, there has to be some respect for it, both knowing and not knowing at the same time. So you're suggesting that the afterlife or heaven is already within us and around us. Yes. And just before we began this show, we did a prayer together. And when I do that, I invite a lot of my friends among the holy ones, uh, St. Michael the Archangel, Mary the Mother of Jesus. Um, I have a whole gaggle of saint and angel friends. It's, and then some who are like my parents who have, who have passed, uh, loved ones who I've known in this lifetime. And I just surround myself with them. And I believe that, uh, that all of this overlaps. Going back to Ray, he, it sounds like he died tragically in a fire. Was it necessary yeah. to help him heal from that experience? Or was it mostly that he was primarily angry with God? Well, we stayed in our lane. You know, we, I asked him what he wanted and we helped him achieve what he wanted. Uh, after that, we, we always do, a, before using anyone's story publicly, we always contact them one last time just to get their permission. Um, I, I try to respect my tradition, which uh, discourages uh, back and forth conversation with persons who have died in general. So I don't uh, just for my amusement call up Ray, but uh, he, we did ask him to come one more time to ask him if we could use his story publicly. And that could have been a very short conversation. It's a yes or no question after all. Yes or no, may we use your story? Well, he decided to tell us more about what he's been doing since. And he, I remember him saying, you know, I didn't like school and school didn't like me. They were always trying to teach me about things I didn't want to know. And he said, now there's all kind of things I do want to know. And I find that, um, he said, after I learned how to be an afterlife greeter, I, I did it once. And I thought, well, I did it once, but I'd really like to know more about it. So he found that he was in a group of people that wanted to do this sort of um, on an ongoing basis. And so he learned more about it by going to school. So um, uh, he he is still a part of my prayer team, a part of my prayer life. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I call on him on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Purgatory means a cleansing space. That's what the word itself means. To purge is, means to cleanse. So it's a metaphor that uh, there's, it's not the only available metaphor, but it's the one that got named in the Catholic tradition that, that, um, that one, there must be some need upon dying to clean up some before being in the absolute, the fullness of the presence of God, however one imagines that. I think myself and those who I grew up with and, and friends and family, it was often felt that that was sort of a punitive place, that somehow there was something that maybe a soul did wrong or there was some shame that they maybe um, bestowed upon themselves or others or that maybe they needed some type of time out. Is that what you have discovered in this 
ex these experiences, or have you well, discovered yeah, something going else? Going back to Catholic school uh, in the early '60s, uh, and uh, there were there were these prayer cards where if you did well on a spelling sheet or something, you'd get you get awarded this picture of a saint on a little card about the size of an index card. On the back, there was, the front was their picture, and on the back there'd be a little prayer, and then a tiny italic line that would say, "Say this prayer, and it's worth a hundred days' indulgence." That you could you could reduce somebody's sentence like you were the warden or something. <laughs> you could or the parole board. You could reduce somebody's purgatorial sentence by praying this prayer for them. Um, well, to me, it's even as a child, I listened as respectfully as I could, but it seemed silly. Uh, uh, that first of all, it made God be like a, a warden, uh, and I don't see Jesus as somebody overseeing a penal colony. Uh, but it was part of the tradition, so I went with it. It seemed to me like clipping coupons, like you know, you can get a, a a discount on purgatory. But I did it anyway because it was part of what I was taught. Um, I've never, I've, it's not been what I've observed in the in the twenty five years of doing this work. The word hardly ever comes up, and only Catholics would use it to begin with. There are only one point four billion of us out of eight billion, so sometimes we need to take a step back and remember that we don't run the universe. Uh, and the way that we think of things isn't the way that everybody thinks of things. Uh, nevertheless, it's, I, I, it, it fits in some ways that there be some, especially that, that there not just be these binaries of heaven or hell and nothing else. It made, always made sense to me that most of life isn't like that. Most of life has some kind of shades of gray or some kind of continuum. And it made sense to me that there be a place for people that uh, didn't fit on either extreme. In reading your books, it seems that it's in the true essence of that word and that these souls have something, like you say, to clean up. Not so much that they're being punished, but that there's something that needs attention, and you've helped many of them with that. I like to think of it as truth, because we can deceive ourselves. Uh, anyone who's ever done therapy has had a therapist help them point out some place where they've exaggerated something uh, out of proportion in a way that makes it less than fully true. Um, or we just misread a circumstance and are just wrong. And, and we won't really be happy until we acknowledge that and live in the truth. And that's, that's not having your nose rubbed in it. And it's not punitive. It's just therapeutic. Uh, and it's just a movement. Any movement towards truth is, is a movement towards God and goodness and love. Uh, you know, do you, have you done a lot of, uh, been around a lot of near death experiencers? I would say that I've explored, uh, connecting with more of those folks and, and researchers of it as well by being a co-host on New Thinking Aloud. I would imagine so. And one of the, 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 uh, the, the stories that emerge from that body of, of information is the idea of an afterlife um, uh, review. Yeah. Uh, and people describe oftentimes floating or being surrounded by love, like some environment that was uh, often it felt watery, uh, something that was only love and where you were completely in, like bathed in love or something like that, at, saturated in it. And then there'd be some scene of your life that was, you were suddenly in almost holographically. Uh, and 
maybe a time when you were part of a um, sarcastic conversation, humor at the expense of someone in the group. And the person who you might have made a comment about somebody that you thought was very clever and witty at the time, but it was hurtful. But the other person didn't let on that they were hurt. They laughed at the joke and interiorized it. Uh, well, sometimes people enter into scenes like that, and then they're shown the consequences of the thing they said or did and how it played out in the life of a person who was harmed and showed you what you did. Well, is that purgatory? It's, um, it's, it has to do with wrongdoing and the opportunity to see the truth of it and to correct it. And so uh, I think of it that way, that a lot of the, I remember I, I described a therapeutic continuum and said, my partners and I are at the end with the discharge staff. So we're not doing all of that work. It's been done already. And these people are kind of vetted and they're ready to leave. And that's what we help them do, kind of get out the door. But I, they often refer to the fact that they've had to work through um, shame and guilt. Um, when people die suddenly, maybe, for example, they might have left small children. And now they feel they've ruined their kids' lives. Well, that's a stretch, you know. Yes, you wouldn't ideally die when you have children that are in kindergarten, but that doesn't mean their life is ruined. That's uh, a little melodramatic. It's understandable, but it, it doesn't accord with the truth. Some people have lost parents early in life and went on to have very full, happy, fulfilling lives. So you don't need to think that way necessarily. So sometimes the work is helping people just... Uh, I don't know, turn the volume up or down on a thing. You know, that, that idea can belong, but it doesn't need to be so loud. <laughs> could, could you just moderate that a bit? The souls you work with have died suddenly and traumatically. So you're working yeah. with those who are, you described as being really in shock when they, after they die and that it seems yeah. that they're needing that support to continue on. And they, they, they get it. Then it's a matter of whether they're receptive to it or not. And, and receptive at kind of what pace. Again, I've not had to do very much physical therapy. I have a little lower back pain and once in a while have to have a therapist, uh, uh, take me through some exercises. But when they do, they try, most, most people in the medical profession try to engage you in your own healing and not take over, uh, and explain things to you, uh, and, Physical therapists will sometimes say, I know this is going to hurt, but let's do five repetitions of this movement. And then they might, after you've done those five, they might say, are you up to five more? And it, and you are free to say yes or no. In the afterlife, there's something like that where they can, they, they, they see that there's a process that needs to be moved through, but they can choose their pace and go faster or slower, if you will. And who is vetting these souls before they come to you? One of them, for sure, is what a Catholic would call their guardian angel. Uh, in the circles that I travel, uh, they're also called spirit guides, uh, sometimes my team, my helpers, uh, whatever. But they at least have one guardian. And in my tradition, they're angels. They're not uh, your grandma. They're, you know, how sometimes at a funeral of, of a baby, for example, people will say, well, now heaven has another little angel. Well, in the Catholic tradition, that would be imprecise. Uh, no heaven, uh, you don't turn, you don't go from being an angel to a human to an angel any more than you go from being human to an elephant. They're different orders of being. Uh, uh, but, um, their guardians, their guardian angels are always with them and they don't leave them. 
they stay with them and they assist. And very often I'll ask their angel to uh, speak first when we're in a session because dreams already have uh, a nature of their own. The genre of, of dream storytelling can have some imprecision in it. And so sometimes you're left wondering, hmm, the, the, this person drove off the road, but we, they didn't tell us whether they were male or female. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to know relative age. Were they a teenager or an octogenarian? Um, uh, th sometimes there are crowd scenes, and I'm not sure are we helping one person today or more than one, because sometimes they go in a group. Uh, and so they, often I've just asked, with their guardian mind speaking first? And often to, you and I did a rather extensive mic test. Uh, both today and a few days ago, there's there's something analogous to that in this in this connectivity, and th most of them have never used another human person's voice before, so it's new, and so their guardian will often come on first just to model it and show them how easy it is, uh, and so we'll talk to the guardian, and the guardian might give us the detail of are we in the United States or not, is the gender and so on, so they're very delightful too. They're always just uh, uh, very sweet people. And some of them can be very matter of fact and task oriented and others are just silly and want to play while they're doing their job. Our mic test was to make sure that you could be heard well. And, and we discovered that maybe you needed to be, by the way, it sounds beautiful that you needed to maybe be closer to your router. So we did problem solve that. And really that's all about being heard and communication. And when you're communicating with these souls, the mic test you're referring to is that they're able to speak through your voice or your prayer partner's voice. Correct. Uh, most of the time it's mine. I do have a few prayer partners who also have this gift. Uh, both of my sisters do, for example. Uh, so there, and there seems to be some ways in which these things run in a family line. Uh, but anyway, the, the, yeah, we, and, and then we're co-conscious. I'm not en entranced. I'm awake and alert all the while. I've learned that they they must uh, use only vocabulary that I have. I'm well-educated and I love words, so I have a lot of words available. Uh, but they have to use words that I know. Um, they don't have to form, they don't have to be English speakers in order for the words to come out of me in English. Uh, and sometimes they marvel at that. I've never learned English, but all I'm doing is forming my ideas and they're coming out in English. And sometimes they've never experienced that. Another thing that can be fun is um, they'll sometimes use some idiom or phrase that belongs to me that they've never used before. And they'll say, huh, I never, the other day, somebody from, I think the forties or fifties, you used the word cool. Uh, that's really cool. And then they stopped and said, now cool. Hmm. Okay. I've never used that phrase before, but I suppose it works. I, that happens a lot where they'll kind of catch some little bit of phrase that is available to me. They also said uh, that one of them said, your consciousness is like a green, sparkly river. And they brought me near it. And But he said, you still have to launch the boat. You still have to get in it. There's something volitional where you'd have to choose to step in it and become a part of it. Um, I don't know. There's, it, there's a lot of fascinating aspects to just the physics of how this works. And I want to be involved in that kind of research. There's people at, at consciousness studies centers now that are applying a lot of ideas from quantum physics, for example, to figure out how does this even work. And by you being a sparkly river, your consciousness getting in the boat is meaning that you are 
taking action or participating in it? Yeah, the, I made I made the river available, but the but the afterlife soul still needs to get in the boat or step into the stream or something like that. Yeah, one guy we used to ask early on, "How did you find us?" Or how did and my, I in first person, "How did you find me?" And we just heard over and over again, uh, "I don't know, somebody brought me here." So we kind of quit asking. But one time, a guy said, "Your light was on." Uh, whatever that meant to him. Well, how beautiful is that? You were available yeah. and ready yeah. and willing. <laughs> and I, I was taught early on by my mom to, you know, consecrate my sleep and make it. She taught me that my eyes were balls. And then in the daytime, we look out the front. And at nighttime, when we close our eyes, we look out the back or we look inside. We look outside in the daytime and inside at the nighttime. And we can meet and God is everywhere. And God is in the day and in the night, and God's in front of you and inside you. So at night, you just uh, say to God, while I'm asleep, would you like to play? Would you like to talk? (laughs) So I was taught that really young and have carried that forward. I I always consecrate my sleep for a particular purpose before I go to sleep. So I intercede for somebody, uh, uh, form a prayer intention and say, while I'm asleep, uh, I'd like my my breathing, the rhythm of my breathing in the, in sleep to be a blessing for this person or that thing. And you've been doing this since you were a young child. Yes. And then when I entered into religious life 43 years ago, I learned that in a monastery, the last prayer of the day is called Compline, which is from the word complete. So it's it's bringing the day to completion, full circle, not just having it end because the clock struck 12 or whatever. Uh, but to ask the Holy Spirit to help you complete the day and not drag stuff into your sleep. You know, have you ever, you know, been working on some project that's incomplete and then you turn off the lights and try to sleep, but you're grinding away at, you know, or that email or that, you know, uh, it's trying to kind of down, uh, downsize or, or offload all of that. And just say, no, all I need, I don't need to multitask while I'm asleep. All I need to do is sleep. Oh, but it, but while I'm unconscious, can we, uh, would you, would you allow my heartbeat or my breathing to be a blessing to this person who's going through trouble or whatever, whatever you, whatever idea you form? Many people think of sleep as a form of rest. It sounds like you've been working overtime. Except I'm resting too. Um, you know, uh, the idea of praying without ceasing, um, uh, it doesn't have to f- involve fatigue and exertion. It can be restful. Uh, and we are, in the Christian tradition, we think of the Holy Spirit as interceding for us from within, that the ho- that you have built into you um, a part of the of the love of God that's always wanting your good. And uh, one of the metaphors about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is the defense attorney, the paraclete, the one who speaks up for you. And so that that there's a voice within you that's always promoting your good, even while you're asleep. So my order is semi-contemplative. So I've been trained in some of these ways of thinking and and acting. How beautiful to set an intention that your breath is a form of prayer for others. If you think about the the two components of a breath, inspiring and expiring, inspiring, inspiration is the root word of uh, spirit is breath and respiration. So God's breath is moving in and out of you all the time. And when, when, when you bring it in, it's nourishing you. 
And it's no more expensive to take a deep breath than a shallow one. You know, I, I, if I'm, when I'm on retreat, I, I teach people some breathing things and I say, you know, you don't need to worry about inflation when you're breathing. <laughs> you can breathe really deep breaths and the meter is not running. <laughs> it, it, you can, you, you can nourish your body fully by taking very deep breaths. And then on the way out, it's always cleansing you. The, the toxins leave your body every time you expire. And, and then if you do this next to a green plant, the plant is doing the same thing you're doing. It's taking in what it needs. It take, it's taking in the carbon dioxide that you throw off and it's, it's getting rid of oxygen as a waste product. And if you just sit next to a plant and breathe deeply, you can help each other and, and detox. And in the night, I pray to detox. And when I have troubles, anxieties, worries, angers, I just say there's this toxin in me and I don't know how to get it out, but I know that my breathing always detoxes me. Would you please see that the, wherever these memories are stored, that they leave one breath at a time? And I've done that, geez. 40 years, I'm sure. You have lived a tremendous life of service and have given so much to so many. How has it helped you personally? Well, I'm enjoying my life. I recently started a podcast too. I call it the Joyful Friar, which was St. Dominic's nickname, the founder of our order. And it was why I was attracted to this, uh, or this brotherhood and not another. Uh, I've lived in a joyful life and that doesn't mean that every moment is happy, but I believe we can wait in joyful hope when things are bad, when things are not going the way we wish they would. They will turn. They really will. And in, in Christian language, Good Friday turns into Easter morning. You just have to be patient with it. And then sometimes you just have to form a, an idea of the hoped for thing and trust that good will come and then try to be aware of goodness even in a bad time. Yeah. Uh, um, I remember praying. My dad died a, a very long, slow death of Parkinson's disease and dementia. He was under 100 pounds at his death. And I just remember praying for the grace for that day to be a, a, a good day, that the day of his death would be, you know, that he would have a happy death. And I remember blessing his body and thinking, okay, that, that, day, that day has arrived and it's, it's not happy, but it can be peaceful. And I'm hopeful for him and glad that his suffering is over. You know, lots of people have had to go through stuff like that where they try to look for the best even in a a, a difficult time. That's that's what I do. Yeah. Oh. I'm sorry to hear about your father, and I'm sure your prayers supported his peaceful uh, transition. He's never been better. He's just fine. He died in 1997, and he's a picture of health now. He's a very happy fellow. And you communicate with him regularly? I wait for him to do the the initiating, but once in a while he he does that more with my younger sister. My I was one from a family of five, and Catherine was the late in life child who had our parents to herself after we had gone off to school, and so she had a, a special relationship with him. And so sometimes I hear of uh, their interactions since he's passed, but once in a while he shows up to me just uh, just uh, with a nudge or a wave. We don't chat. We could if we wanted, but we don't find it necessary. You mentioned Easter. How do you relate to the story of Jesus being resurrected from the dead in light of your experiences? One thing that's important to me is that Jesus spoke to the dead while he was alive, before the cross. Um, 
uh, Christian members of your audience might be aware of the the uh, story of the Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain, uh, in and then his clothes are dazzlingly white, and he appears with Moses and Elijah talking back and forth. Moses and Elijah are historical figures of the day that were had been dead, had died centuries previously, but there he was talking with them. Uh, then, of course, in the in the apparition stories at, in the Gospels and on into the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the the dead and risen Christ shows up to people and eats with them and talks with them and so on. So, to me, it just looks like all that stuff was true. That uh, that w- there is uh, some appropriate back and forth between uh, planes, and I just live there. So it sounds like your interpretation of that story is that not only did Jesus speak with those who had previously lived on earth, he also is continuing in the afterlife, and that is the rebirth there? Yeah, he... uh, he Men in the in the early the stories, many of the people that populate the gospel stories ended up martyred. Who they did they died violent traumatic deaths um, because of um, their willingness to speak about Jesus. And uh, so, a lot of those people have <laughs> have gotten over their own troubles, and I know some of them. Uh, uh, some of them have been a part of my active uh, life. Um, but anyway, I, ju- I, I, there's a, that's a phrase that, that's used in the Catholic Church that's called the Easter Proclamation. The Easter Proclamation is this, is one sentence long. Jesus is risen from the dead. And we're not just happy for him as this unique creation that was the one in a million who won the lottery and, and was risen from the dead. Uh, he, he's the, he's the, we believe the forerunner, the, uh, first fruits, it's sometimes called, uh, the one who shows us who we truly are and how we truly live. And that all, this is the destiny for all of us is to survive our deaths. And the reason I've made this such a late in life, uh, focus, because I believe all of us on this earth are, are mortal. And if we gained an appreciation for the fact that we're also immortal at the same time, we might not let decline and approaching death or the loss suddenly of loved ones boss us around. Uh, you, you're, I, I deal a lot now because of people like you that make me known through podcasts and such. I have a lot of people who contact me through my website who have lost children or lost somebody they love. And many times it's sudden, although even even uh, deaths that were predictable still hurt. And oftentimes people really don't know what to do after that. And so I end up helping them. I'll just say, well, remember, you're talking to a Catholic priest, so don't be too surprised if I use Catholic Christian language. But I do believe Catholic does mean universal. So you don't have to default to sectarian language necessarily, but I, but it, it's it's what I know. So I share what I know and just say, it's not necessary for you to think of your loved one as far away. In fact, would you, nobody really wants to be in a long-distance relationship if they can be with their beloved. Could you just try flipping it? Before you think of them, would you imagine them nearby? That, that might change things. So I do a little bit of, I don't do extensive online counseling with the same person, 
you know, in the, my first, in the first of the Afterlife Interrupted books, we use the word stuck in the subtitle. But, um, so I sometimes am known for this. People will Google stuck souls and my name will come up uh, and they'll contact me. But sometimes they're quick to assume that their loved one is stuck without real evidence of that. And so sometimes I'll challenge that and say, let's not presume that they're having a, after, a problematic afterlife because we don't know that to be true. Uh, they could just be having a nice sleep. Uh, you, very often at funerals, we say, may they rest in peace. So let's not, let's not make it worse than it has to be. Grief is already bad. Uh, can, can we just ease up a bit? And then I teach them little, you know, ways to, in, you know, enhance their own intuition and in the ways that they might think of their loved one and, and talk with them or at least talk at them. If they don't, even if they don't have the, the satisfaction of hearing, messages and such, I can at least teach them how to form their imagination to pray for the good of their, their loved one. Yeah. Well, that's a lovely service to help people know that they can continue to have a relationship with their loved ones. You discovered that these souls aren't necessarily stuck, however. Yes. I, I, uh, early on that seemed to be the case. And I, and that's one of those places where when I was talking earlier about you could be wrong, uh, being wrong doesn't necessarily mean that you got, you chose the wrong option on a true false test. Not everything is binary that way. Uh, sometimes you can be wrong just by exaggerating a truth to the point where you've stretched it to, to the point where now it's, uh, you've moved away from truth. So, so some, some of the souls that, um, that I've dealt with just died so suddenly. Many are murder victims, for example. Uh, and, uh, so they might have anger, resentments, different things like that, that, that they need to move through, but they're, they're not necessarily, one way to be stuck would be to be in a trauma loop. And that's one reaction to being a victim of trauma. But not every traumatic event creates a trauma loop. Some people get shot or have the trauma. Uh, and they experience it as one thing that happened in a sequence of events, and then they deal with it. Um, and so some people are really not so much stuck as they are just working through what they have to do yeah. to, to find peace. Yeah. And they have the most lovely, they all have teams of people. And any of your audience who might be familiar with the 12 steps of AA and all of the other healing uh, movements that have, have come out of the 12 steps, you don't have to be, they don't, even people who, who now are sober don't necessarily call themselves former alcoholics. They'll say recovering alcoholics. Uh, and sometimes people who haven't really achieved long-term sobriety are asked to help somebody that's, uh, that they're a little bit ahead of. You know, uh, I've been in campus ministry uh, and a lot of the times in, in, uh, in ministry, People who are flawed and wounded are helping people who are also flawed and wounded because <laughs> sometimes the parts of us that aren't flawed or wounded are, are helpful to somebody else. And you don't necessarily have to wait until you reach some uh, status in order to help somebody else. And I find that in the afterlife, uh, sometimes people who are still working through a, a traumatic death are doing so while they're helping new arrivals or other folk. It gives dignity to, to see yourself as having, uh, gifts to give that 
make someone else's life better. And sometimes people led lives that had very little dignity attached to them. And then in the afterlife, they have to learn, oh, you were always better than people thought you were. <laughs> you were always better than you thought you were. And we'll just help you see that. And the part of the, one of the ways they do that is by helping people grow in their own esteem uh, by seeing themselves as helpful agents, someone who accomplished something. Yeah. Even in AA, they very often will give you some little button or badge or coin or something that's, you know, that's your 30-day coin that shows that you've made some progress and everybody applauds. I've seen that. There's afterlife scenes where people are sometimes, um, they have their moment in the spotlight and there are other people who just stay back to applaud them so that they get, you know, acknowledgement and, and, uh, and, and then they move on to a next thing, next part of their progress. It's really sweet. So the soul or consciousness continues to evolve. Yes. Yeah. Just, I, I just believe that's so natural. I mean, uh, I'm almost 67 years old. I'm not the way I was 50 at 50 or 30. I sort of am because there, there are, there are attributes that are, uh, that, that are, you know, that, that move and don't change. But then there are others like my hair color. I, it wasn't always gray. <laughs> Uh, there are lots of attributes that we have that are, are what, what in philosophical languages are called accidentals. You, know, you can go to the store and have a different hair color by the end of the day if you want, um, and, but you're still you. And, and in the afterlife, people can sometimes learn that they need to change a part of their self-definition because they'll have a way that they define themselves that holds them back, harms them, and is really not true. That phrase that, have you ever had anybody say to you angrily, that's just the way I am? <laughs> sure. <laughs> or maybe you've said that to somebody else. Well, oftentimes that's a defense mechanism at a time when someone's being challenged to be a better version of themselves, but they don't want to. Uh, and then they have the perfect right not to, I suppose. But uh, sometimes in the afterlife, they have to be shown, well, if you persist in that thought, you're, you're free to do so. We just won't be able to help you. Yeah. But please don't think that way because we really do want to help you. Many of the souls who die traumatically or tragically, you have discovered, do actually continue on in the afterlife quite seamlessly. But I believe you suggested that maybe only about 5% of those become the ones who need your assistance from people such as yourself. Yes, thanks for bringing that up because anybody that's listening to this who's lost a loved one violently and suddenly, please don't assume that they need this kind of help. I don't think it's common. Uh, I think it's uncommon. I don't really know, but I, I, that's what I believe to be true. Uh, and so I, I encourage people, don't, don't make your grief harder than it has to be by presuming that now, oh my God, on top of everything else, uh, I've got this afterlife loved one that is in trouble. Uh, they're, they're actually, what I've seen is that they, they, they are given, it's like a Montessori school. Have you ever been to one of those? where there's all these things around that you can interact with in order to learn. It's very tactile and colorful. That's, it seems to me a lot like that, where they're just all kind of resources are made available to you. And then it's up to you to use them, but you'll have all kind of coaches to help you use them if you decide to do so. Would you suggest that crossing over would be someone moving from the earthly realm to the afterlife? Or where are they crossing to and from? Not really the ones that I deal with. I think there is that phenomenon of um, ghosts or disembodied spirits that seem to haunt a hotel room or some 
something like that. There is that phenomenon, but that's really not what I work with on a genuine, on a ongoing basis. So the people that I, I deal with, uh, are not earthbound spirits. They've moved to, it's almost like a radio band, you know, like, uh, you know, how you, you, you might have a, a station that you're, is going in and out, but if you turn the knob just a little bit that way, you get a stronger signal. I've, I've heard that people talk about it that way, that today, because of the help that we're providing, they're graduating from one frequency to a, a higher one. Doesn't mean that they can never come back to the previous one. It's just that it's like a glass ceiling. They're, they're able to move through, uh, now because they're ready to a, a next level. And, uh, and it does seem to have something and it does, the metaphor does have to do with ascendancy higher. What does that mean when you're not in material space? You know? What is higher or lower mean in the universe? But it, but it's a way that, that is spoken of and people move to a place of greater freedom and possibility opportunity than they were at before. We, we help with something like that. With connotations of the afterlife being a more happy and peaceful place, why do you think a soul would require your assistance in some of these instances versus their guardian angel or some other group, individual, or party assisting them uh, in the afterlife? Probably a lot do. I mean, uh, it's not as though every every soul that died violently is waking me up every night. I couldn't handle that. I, I've met a lot of people who do similar work because of being on podcasts and pe- having people contacting me and say, I thought I was the only one or whatever. There's There are other people who do this in different ways. Um there's one sweet lady. I don't know if you, uh, uh, in the, in the second of the two books, there's a story of a woman named Wilhelmina who, um, did you read that one? Yes. Uh, she is just a delight. She, she didn't die violently, but her husband dropped dead right in front of her and it shattered her. Uh, and she dissociated and never really lived in her heart of hearts a day after that. She dissociated. She stayed near her consciousness, but she, she said, I became an actress. I did whatever I thought people expected me to do because it was too difficult to live in my heart anymore. And she she hoped that in the afterlife she was Catholic, and she said, I just hoped that I would die one day and it would all be over, and that she would be whole and happy and healthy. Well, she did die, and uh, and when she arrived uh, to her afterlife place, they said, well, it's not automatic, dear. You still have to take part. We'll show you how because you used to know how to do this. And we'll remind you. We'll help you. We'll help you be the agent of your life again and not just be this phantom or sh- shadow of what, of, of what you used to be. And she, when she had healed to the point where she was ready to move, they said to her, it's time for you to make a move, but now we need to choose for you a way for you to make the move. And she said, I used to shop the big catalogs. J.C. Penny and Sears. I would sit in my front room and I would page through the catalogs. So she said they handed me catalogs and said, "Here's just browse through these and something will appeal to you." And she turned a page and said, "It was me." That there was this Catholic priest that helps people do this movement, and he and his team. And she said, "I think I'd like that one because I was a Catholic." And so that's why she ended up in. They call it my line, like they are in line. <laughs> They're waiting their turn. I have right now I have about six or seven that are in the line. Yeah. Uh, I have to, I've been really busy of late and just met with, uh, with a prayer partner and, and did a couple of crossings and, but we have about six or seven that are in the line and I try not to make them wait too long. 
Yeah. You share wonderful stories in your book. I think of, is it、uh, Rainy comes to mind and where she was a young woman who disobeyed her parents and went out into the ocean and died in a tsunami? Yeah. So she pronounces it Rani.、Uh, they were Indian, but they were on holiday in Sri Lanka, the, the island nation just south of India. And it was that horrific、uh, earthquake and tsunami that killed a quarter of a million people back in, it was the day after Christmas, I think, in maybe 2004.、Uh, anybody alive then remembers that. It was just on such a grand scale. She just was a 12 year old, only child. Uh, very well educated parents. They were in a luxury ho-、uh, beachfront hotel in Sri Lanka. It was a Sunday morning and she was forbidden to go to the beach alone, but her parents were sleeping in and she just couldn't stand it. The beach beckoned. She felt like,、uh, I'll deal with it later. And she went down to the beach just in time to be swept out to sea. And、uh, then in the afterlife, she felt she had died.、Uh, if you think of, of Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, And the, the woman with the big A, she had something like that, like in the middle of her being, that she、uh, died disobedient. And that she, now that was her name tag. She's colossally disobedient. And so in the afterlife, she felt the need to cling to that notion. And well, it was true. She was disobedient. But I remember asking her, so tell me this, Ronnie, if I had known you、uh, prior to your death, would I have been Uh, appalled and disgusted about、uh, the the way that you so disrespected your parents. And an,、uh, and she said, Oh, no, no, no. It was, it, I, I was, it was really quite mild. I was mostly obedient. It's just that I chose the very worst possible time to disobey their rules. And I said, See, that's the point. Could you, could you wear that instead? I was mostly an obedient, loving daughter who did the wrong thing at the wrong time. And doesn't that just make sense? I mean, You must have known somebody that's unhappy because they've exaggerated some part of their story in a way that hurts them. And they're allowed to do that if they want to. But you, you might come along and encourage them to try something else if they're ready. That's all we did with her. For her, you helped heal her sense of shame. Yes. And to recognize that. Uh, it's, it's funny, even people who didn't believe there was going to be an afterlife now are, are in it. And so, whatever their beliefs were about life and death and what, if anything happens next, they know now that, oh my God, I certainly did survive my death. And then we just help them, if they're stuck in, in a kind of a, a definition like Ronnie was, I'm, a, I'm disobedient, can say, well, are you going to be that for all eternity? One guy、uh, said, his guardian said to him,、uh, Do you want to be eternally unhappy? Because you're unhappy right now and you're continuing to think in ways that make you unhappy. And as long as you keep doing that, you'll continue to be unhappy. Would you like to be eternally unhappy? And he said that was the key at the lock. Nobody had put it to him that way. And he said, No, thank you. I don't think I would like to be eternally unhappy. So his guardian said, Well, then let's get started on <laughs> how to move from this familiar way of thinking to something that might be. Uh, your next way of thinking. When you're assisting these souls, oftentimes it seems that you ask the soul to invite in a person who has passed, who loved them, to be with them, to assist them. Yes. 
especially when it's time to move. Uh, that just seemed to make sense to me that, uh, and remember all of these people have gone through trauma. So all of them have a perfect reason to feel skittish and nervous about making a new move. And many of them died moving. Many of them were in car crashes or, you know, planes or trains or something that involved motion at the time that they died. Um, and uh, they're about to make an important move. So it just seemed commonsensical to me to say, wouldn't you like to have, who, who has loved you most who died before you did? And if they could form that thought, I'd say, well, would it be okay if we asked them to come? Uh, and that worked a lot. Sometimes uh, we just said, some of them said, well, I've been so well treated here by everybody that meant since I died that I'm sure that whoever comes next will be appropriate. And so they, I call that luck of the draw. They would just take whoever came. And that worked out great. Uh, that turned out to be a lot of school teachers, um, a lot of ch children, friends from elementary school, very often not parents. Because even those of us who have loving relationship with parents, the parental relationship has lots of levels, and uh, they might have needed to correct you in ways that uh, that might have some residue that's unhappy. Um, you mentioned divorce. Lots of times there's been some rupture. Uh, uh, but there's some sweet little relationships in your life that, that are not complicated like that. All that little girl ever did was push you on the swing. And and if she shows up, she's nothing but light, happiness, and peace. And, and she's perfectly capable of walking you from here to there. So that that was a surprise. And then once in a while, they'll, but there'll be somebody that's, that uh, invites celebrity. They'll say, you mean it can be anybody? Well, then I want Einstein. That's what one guy said. Uh, uh, and so we just, that was a surprise. But I said, well, we're not summoning, we're inviting. And we're, we're, it's not our place to boss it around people in the afterlife and tell them what they must do, but we can ask. And so we, once in a while, we'll ask, and honest to God, you'll get, get the person they want. And if it's Einstein, it's Einstein. How did Einstein help that soul? That, that one, I've, been camper, I've been a campus minister, so much of my life has been helping an 18 to 30-year-old folk. And this guy um, was on what sometimes... Um, referred to as a gap year. He had finished an undergraduate degree. He was the only child of PhDs. And he knew that his the script that was laid out before him was he was going to get a PhD. He, and he didn't mind that. He just didn't want what he called a clunky process. He didn't want to have to take some two-year master's in something and then, and then apply somewhere else for something else. He was looking for something that he thought was seamless. And he said, I didn't want very specific, he wanted a, a generalist PhD. You know, do those even exist? Is there a way that <laughs> you can get a doctorate? I think that's sort of the antithesis of a doctorate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if any of your audience have been to a graduation where somebody actually gets a PhD, they usually read their dissertation title out loud and there's often laughter all through the auditorium because none of us wouldn't notice what that means <laughs> it just it just seems laughable in the moment well he didn't want that he wanted something broader and deeper and he said i wasn't religious but i like the way religious people often thought of things i like philosophy but i didn't want to be a philosopher um he said i liked physics and chemistry but i didn't want to spend all that lab time anyway he was he was on a walk he was in one of those I, one of those apps like meetup where people can 
say, we're all going kayaking. If you want to go kayaking, meet at this parking lot. Well, anyway, he did something like that and met up with a group of people that were going to go on a hike in hopes of meeting people. But he said everybody that was there came with somebody else and they were all in their little groups talking with each other. And he said, um, so I just read the situation and I decided, well, I'm here to go for a hike. And he said, I just let everybody go. And he said, hikes aren't a very good place to meet people anyway, because you're talking to the back of their head, you know, uh, on a trail. It's usually one at a time. And so he said, I just decided to fall back and be alone with my thoughts. And then he took a misstep that turned into an avalanche of gravel and dirt. And he rolled downhill and landed uh, upside down in a pile of dirt where he couldn't breathe. And he said, I knew in an instant that I was in an unsurvivable circumstance and it didn't take very long for me to be dead. Um, and then one, once he, he didn't really need much of our help. He, he, he really, it was, that one was quick, but he'd not done it before. And he said, well, here's the way it typically works. Either you, either you pick somebody from your life who's loved you and has died. Uh, you choose, you, you just allow for somebody to come. And then as an aside, I said, once in a while, people ask for somebody famous who has died. And he said, wait just a second. You just kind of passed over that in a hurry. Does that mean that I could ask for anybody who has ever lived and died? And I said, well, we can't demand that they come, but we can ask that they do. And he said, well, if that's the case, I want Einstein. So asking you shall receive. He, he asked for Einstein. I said, and I, my friend who was the prayer partner, I remember her saying, all righty then. All righty then, we will ask for Einstein, and um, and then when he emerged, we didn't. I, it's not visual for me, but she said, "He said, uh, this is so cool. He's showing up not like that old guy with the walrus mustache and the wild white hair. He's showing up as the Tweety young professor, like thirty years old or something, just starting out his career, where he can kind of be like an older brother mentor, really, really smart older brother. And he'd always wished he'd had a sibling and didn't have one." He said, he's coming to me like he's my really, really smart older brother. So off they went. What And what did Einstein do? Took him for a walk or something. Uh, uh, all he did was walk. <laughs> he died walking. But uh, he said, we're going to go for a walk, but there's not going to be any avalanches this time. We're just going to go for a walk. And I don't know. I didn't. Uh, I We had to have, have contacted him one more time to get his permission. I'd have to go back and read my own book <laughs> to to remember the details of what uh, what they did, what he said next. But he he had he ended up helping other young people. He he was met by a group of people who died while getting doctorates. Oh, okay. Uh, and they kind of commiserated with the fact that they were in the middle of something that they didn't finish. But it's okay. This is really nice here. You're going to enjoy it. We'll we'll be your buddies for as long as you need us to be. When someone famous like that comes, or even all of this, how much do you feel this is in the imagination realm, or how much of it do you feel is really happening? Yeah, one of the, um, the word imago in Greek is image, means face. And I do an exercise with people when I'm doing retreats. I'll ask them to close their eyes and use their imagination, and I'll ask them to imagine something real with their eyes closed. And then uh, raise your hand when you're finished. And then I'll say, okay, open your eyes. Who would be willing to tell us what they just imagined? Well, I imagined my cat, my daughter, a fish, an apple. Oh, all of those are real things. All right. Now, 
please close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you now, please, to imagine something that you know is not real, but it doesn't mean you can't imagine it. And it takes them a little longer. And I say, if you have the heart of a child, it'll be easier. Children can imagine uh, unreal things. You know, most children's literature involves talking dogs and cats and all kinds of things that are are not exactly real. Um, So anyway, I'll I'll ask for how many imagined um, unicorns? There's always unicorns. There's always dragons. Uh, uh, I, I imagine a talking bowling ball. Well, bowling balls don't talk, but that doesn't mean you can't imagine one. So that's that's using the imagination. Imagination can contain real or unreal things. So to call something imaginary only precisely tells you that it was in your imagination. It doesn't tell you whether it's real or unreal. It was imaginary. Then I say the next step is theological reflection is to discern was that thing real or unreal? Was that experience real or unreal? And uh, that's a really appropriate question for to ask somebody that's talking as I do. <laughs> are, are you just imagining all of this? Well, of course I am. But is it real? I believe so. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, I, I, do you, did you ever study epistemology? I believe a form of it in philosophy classes. Yes. I had to take a whole semester of it or a whole quarter of it. And epistemology is the study of knowing. Did you, whoever, how do you, I didn't know there was such a thing, but one of the things that the, the basic tenets of epistemology is, um, the, the idea that we, that in human bodies, we know things through the five senses, either one or a combination of the five senses. And in a courtroom, the judge and the jury and the lawyers were not at the scene of the crime. And so they bring in someone who was, who testifies that I saw this, I heard that. And then the rest of us had to decide whether or not we believe in their testimony. Okay. Uh, the scientific method moves that way. If it didn't, we'd have to repeat every last experiment ev- ever done uh, to have our own sense of whether the sun rises in the east or not. Well, knowledge will never advance if we just keep going on that hamster wheel. We, at some point, we decide to accept the testimony of another as true. We move that into the first premise of the next logical argument or the next hypothesis because we prove that this is true. Well, since that is true, we can posit a middle term and then move to another possible truth. The scientific method moves that way. So people can either decide with my stuff, they can at least hear it, which they're doing if they haven't turned off this podcast, uh, uh, or uh, and then they can decide that sounds true to me. Or it sounds not true to me. Um, and I just believe that's the way the whole world operates. We, so people don't have to believe in the truth of what I say. I can at least offer it as testimony and then they're free to decide. And these souls came to you in your dreams. And did you ever experience where they wouldn't leave you alone? Do you feel like they kept coming and that's why you felt you needed to take action? No, the closest that was when I was doing the first of the two books, I was, I just thought 12 is a nice round number and I would have 12 stories, but I had so many to choose from, which 12? And I was praying, Lord, which 12 would you like in here? And I talked to other people and we had picked a group and I thought we were, had closed the category. And then this one guy kept, it kept coming to awareness. And I thought, this just feels like one of those spiritual taps that for whatever reason he needs to be 
in the book. And so he made it in uh, at the end. And then he ended up being a bridge between books one and two. He ends up in both of them. Uh, and I didn't know how that was going to operate. It just did. Your abilities seem very in line with mediumistic or channeling abilities. Am I a medium? Am I a, a channeler? Are you? Well, I go back to etymology. Uh, medium is one of the ways that you can prepare a tasty steak. Uh, a median is a, a, a thing that runs down the middle of the road. Uh, in math, I think um, um, uh, middle, uh, median, I think those have a precise like, mathematical application. It just means to be in the middle of. And uh, so it's true that when I do this work, I'm in the middle of an exchange between persons and ideas and stuff. But that word uh, has, a, has it's kind of radioactive in my Catholic Church, and I'm trying to stay a priest in good standing and active ministry. And I don't get to uh, create the language necessarily. So I know that that uh, that in my little Catholic context, that is, uh, I don't call myself that. I think of myself as having a gift of prophecy. Mm -hmm. The, a prophet is also in the middle. A prophet allows God to speak through them. And... Uh, and so that's what I do. I, th I think of that as a gift of prophecy. The other one, um, channeler. Well, in Spanish, uh, the word for channel is canal. Have you ever been in a Spanish speaking country and turn on the TV? Yes. It's, it's, it's canal diez. It, it, it just means channel 10. Uh, so canal is, a, is a channel. Uh, and it's just something that somehow contains an energy that's flowing, you know? a channel of electricity through a wire or here in Arizona, I'm very near a, a canal that brings water from the Colorado river to, to Phoenix. And, uh, and I do experience, uh, have experienced that it feels kind of like that. There's an energy that is the other person speaking that moves through me. Uh, I don't do that without first, uh, protective prayer. And I don't do it to amuse myself or for financial gain or anything like that. I'm not trying to get the lottery numbers for tomorrow's lotto. I'm just trying to help somebody. And so um, when I'm around people who are mediums or channelers, I, I try not to um, be disrespectful of their own way of describing themselves. I just choose to use language that helps me in my community. Are there other priests or colleagues such as yourself in your Dominican order who have these gifts and abilities? And how receptive are they to your abilities? I would only know if they told me. And a lot of people don't speak of these things, not just in religious circles, but uh, there's a lot of people who have been in medical careers who decided in the middle of their career, or maybe late in their career, that now it's time to talk about this because I have tenure. Or I have enough, uh, I've, I have enough money. <laughs> I somehow, you know, we can sometimes later in life, we can feel a little more, um, comfortable about, um, uh, speaking freely than we did earlier in our life. Sometimes by, by middle, midlife or later, we've experienced enough rejection that we've managed to get through that we know that we can do it again. If somebody, if so and so rejects me because I've said something, well, I can, live with that. 
I don't know. That's what I've done. I, I, it, the, the, in our, uh, in our tradition, we have lots of mystic saints who have gifts like this. And in the, my Dominican order, there are a lot of them. And so when I am challenged on it from anybody within my tradition, I can say, well, what about Dominic? He talked to Mary. The habit that I'm wearing in our lore, uh, Mary, mother of Jesus, gave this to Dominic and said, wear this. Uh, uh, there's lots of, uh, of stories of, of the holy ones. And holy, just because we're from the word whole, we're all invited to be whole uh, and not fragmented. It, you don't need to think of um, of it's not arrogant to aspire to be holy. It's it's the universal call. All of us are called to be whole. So I don't uh, I don't uh, exalt myself because I've got these gifts. They're just to be used in in a way to promote the good. That's all. You're in your truth. I am. I am. And and I'm and I'm okay with that. And I and I and for any of your your listeners who are Christian. We, we follow Jesus the crucified. He got killed for living his truth and loving across boundaries, just loving everybody all the time, as annoying as that was to people around him. <laughs> and he, I believe I'm supposed to do that same thing. I'm just to live to love everybody all the time as best I know how. Yeah, it seems that in the Catholic faith that much of it is built on prophecy. However, in modern times, it seems that it's sort of um, dismissed or not acceptable to have these kind of gifts? It depends. that When when that occurs in my life, it's usually people are uh, concerned about the dark side, about the demonic. And that's not without reason. And there's a lot of different cosmologies. And I'm, I've been around plenty of people in, uh, in this realm who don't believe there is a, a devil or um, a hell or a uh, any need of protection. And I don't know about all these things, but I, I've, I've experienced enough to know that I'm not going into that realm without protection. Uh, I don't pick up hitchhikers here or hereafter. Uh, not every, even though I believe everybody has been made in the image of God, some people are behaving badly currently and not everybody is good companionship. So I protect myself and my partners before we do this kind of work. And I encourage others to do the same, and I can teach them uh, some techniques about how to do that. And the Catholic faith, it seems that it prides itself on tradition and stability, and there are certain tenets that Catholics must follow. How do you feel you may be progressing the Catholic faith, or is that even something that's even possible, or do you even view it that way? Well... Do you know that at the beginning of the Bible, there are two creation stories, not one? The one that people are most familiar with is the seven days of creation, and it's very fixed. Day by day, God creates something, finishes it, stands back from it, says it's finished, and it's good. Very big on finitude. Then there's a second story that's the Adam and Eve story, which is actually 500 years older than the other one. And that one, the first one starts with a formless void and God speaking across an abyss and saying, let there be light. So it presumes a God outside of the created thing, creating the thing. The second story starts, the curtain opens with God sitting in a mud puddle. There's, there was, it was mostly desert, but there was water bubbling out of the ground and God scoops up some clay and turns it, makes something, a container out of it, but puts his mouth up to it. And blows into it and it becomes a human being. 
And then he looks at it and says, it's good, but it could be better. And, and then he says, I think it needs a companion. And so in that story, God takes all the biodiversity of the earth and does like a parade, like you might under the Christmas tree with your toys, makes a parade of everything. All the animals come by the first human and the, he, God is waiting for the guy to be delighted. And he, he keeps trying to delight him and he's not delighted enough. And so God finally just decides, I'm going to put him into a deep sleep. He's going to tweak his creation. He's going to continue to work with it, not just finish it. He, he continues to work with it until he finally creates, he scoops out some of him because he's made of clay. He scoops out the middle of him, creates another being. He wakes up next to that being and goes, ah, this one, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So you see that, that there's a way of thinking of God actively co-creating an, an evolving universe in that story. And I just believe that's been there all along and that um, uh, if, and the universe is expanding. And if we're universal people, we expand with it. That just seems natural to me. Amen to that. And how would you define God? Uh, love. God is love. Um, God is all truth. Um, God's beyond words, uh, concepts, uh, my beloved, that's a start. And where are we in relationship to God? Uh, inside. I often ask groups, I did this just last week. I ask a group of people, Hey, has anybody here ever lived inside anybody else? And the other day, this lady took the bait and said, no, of course not. And then I just let there be some silence until it, someone goes, uh, all of us lived inside somebody else. <laughs> I asked this lady, how did you get here? Were you hatched from an egg? <laughs> Even an egg, that would have been something you, you were once inside of. We were all once inside somebody else. And then I'll say, okay, if, do you believe that God is everywhere? And almost everybody who believes in God will say, yes, I believe that God is everywhere. It used to be that ancients thought that there were localized gods. And the answer would have been, no, of course not. There's a God of, of here and there's a God of there. Moderns don't think that way. We think that if there's a God, that God is everywhere. So I'll say, okay, do you believe that God is everywhere? Well, then you're somewhere. How much do you weigh? And of course, nobody wants to answer that in public, but uh, there, there's, a certain, there's a certain substance that's you. It's very evident there's a you here that's in this space. Well, if God's everywhere, aren't you in the space that God is in? Don't you overlap like Venn diagrams where you're inside God? And then if you're inside God, well, does, does the, does, I'll ask them, do you think fetuses believe in mothers? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 if you can't see God, it might be because, um, you're inside God. Anyway, that's the way I think of it, that we're, we're part of this one organic, uh, love that is God and that, that is the created universe and that we all belong, that nobody, part of what religions sometimes do is define who's in and who's out. And Jesus ran up to that in a, in a big way. He was, he was mostly killed, I think, because when people told him, don't you know what he does for a living? Don't you know what, she, what, what kind of woman that is? Or don't you know those are our enemies? Uh, he just kept loving even when he was told, to stop at the border. He just kept going beyond the border and encouraged all of us to do that. And 
So he, and they, and they said to him, we will kill you if you don't stop this. And he pretty much said, you do what you need to do. I'll do what I need to do. I need to love. And I just believe that's the power that I live in. Yeah. May we all be more loving. Father Nathan, why is it so important for you to share your abilities in a public way like this? I don't think of it as sharing my abilities. Sharing my experiences is more the way I'd put it. And the stories of other people who can inspire. Um, for one thing, nobody would hope to have the kinds of deaths that my little clientele endured. The worst did come to the worst. And they were murdered. Or they were, sh- they were drowned or whatever. Uh, and, and even when the worst comes to the worst, there's still a tomorrow. There's still a next thing. And you don't need to be defined by death or any other um, aspect of it. There's always an opportunity for you to become the next version of you. And I just believe if that's 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 not a novelty. That's not something I arrived at late in life and thought, oh, I think I'll focus on that. That's just been part of my whole upbringing. That that uh, that that God is always turning darkness into light and we can be part of that cycle and not to be too uh, thrown out of gear when we're in the, the decreasing cycle or we're in the, the loss cycle because it always turns and not to, not to get all thrown out of joint when, when something is coming apart or uh, decreasing or something. That's just the way the universe operates. Um, I need a nice word for it. Excrement um, (laughs) becomes fertilizer. The sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> yes, doesn't that sound cheerful? <laughs> that's why I'm the joyful friar. I believe that that's that's the truth that it will, and we might need to, you know, accompany one another in sorrow and not be too chirpy and uh, creepy about, you know, being a Pollyanna. But on the other hand, uh, we can, in ways that are appropriate and kind and compassionate. Compassion means to suffer with, um, but um, but to suffer with in a way that also points toward the light when someone else there's a story when when mary was pregnant with jesus she goes to visit her cousin elizabeth probably to help her with midwifery because her cousin elizabeth is elder but having a baby and so it might have been a difficult pregnancy she walks into a room and her her cousin says who am i that the mother of my lord should come to me she just she mag she says my soul magnifies the lord and that's my uh, little motto as I believe my purpose is to receive love, magnify love, give love. And you can do that the way you breathe in and out or your heartbeat. You just do that over and over again. And I believe you uh, are a blessing. We can all do that. Thank you for the love that you have shared with us, Father Nathan. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Is there anything else you want to share with us today about the interrupted death experience? Just the basics of, uh, of if you're interested in, in this, uh, how to learn more about it or how to reach me or stuff like that. Um, uh, I ask that people, if they, if they learn of me on a podcast, please don't contact me and ask questions until you've read my books. There just aren't enough hours in the day to explain what I've already explained. So if you, if you find you're really interested, and, and I have a vow of poverty, so trying to get you to not buy another book is not uh, what I'm up to. It's not about money. It's just about information. And if you're curious, 
please. And the books are available in print form, in ebook form, e-reader, and audio. And I particularly like the audio ones because they're in my own voice and they're mostly with my prayer companions' voices too. Um, so uh, do that first. Uh, you can contact me through my website, which is my name, Nathan Castle. Nathan-Castle.com is the website. And I'm sure that your production people have this wherever these show up. But Nathan-Castle.com, uh, if you go to find the contact place in it, um, I ask that people give me their uh, time zone, because if we're going to try to do a Zoom call or something, it's helpful to not try to schedule that in the middle of the night in Australia or something. So there's a little contact form. Um, and then my YouTube channel it got cleaned up during the pandemic because I was at home a lot. <laughs> so instead of it being a dump for odd video, it's really kind of organized. I do a lot of Bible study for people that might be interested in that. Um, and what I don't do is contacting your deceased loved ones. So please don't ask me to be in touch with your loved one because I, I don't do that. I wait for them to come to me. I don't go seeking out others. But in general, that's what I'd like people to know, that I'm, I, I try to be available to people that might need a little help. Thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today. Father Nathan Castle, thank you so much for being with me. All right. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity, and thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Mm-hmm.